Welcome back to Beyond Well. I'm Sheila Hamilton. And as we do from time to time, we love to revisit an episode from past shows. It's like digging into a shoebox of old photos, often surprising what you're going to find if you go back far enough. This show, which was the third show we ever presented, was one of our most listened to episodes. It was aired in April of 2019. We were still green and getting our sea legs, but the presentation, well, it's aged pretty well, mostly because of the topic sex, promiscuity, and love addiction. And as you'll hear, we're not sure exactly what to call it. Our guest, Carrie Cohen, author of the book, Loose Girl, a memoir of promiscuity. Enjoy. This is Beyond Well, and today we're talking with Carrie Cohen. Actually, I'm going to give you a little bit of background, Carrie, on how difficult it was for us to come up with this topic. But first, I want to introduce my co-host, Dr. Jana Lejeune and Dr. Brian Goff. Okay, Carrie, we had this long conversation about what to call this program. The, the name. Uh, the name today. Because we were like, okay, sex is so broad. It's way too broad. And promiscuity is so judgmental. Exactly. So Jenna suggested a really amazing title called sex not judging what was it sex it was like sex shame versus curiosity or right? something like that oh, and like that. brian suggested probably something sarcastic like looking for love in all the wrong places or something like that. <laughs> yeah because it's sort of it's sort of love addiction too but it's not entirely love addiction and also i even though i'm writing a whole book about that i hate that that uh, word. I mean, I hate the term. You hate. I assume addiction, not love, right? Right. Yeah. I, sure. I hate the notion. I hate that we call it sex, love addiction and sex and love addiction because it's like that's why everyone goes to SLAA for it, which I find ridiculous and not helpful. And, right. You know, and so right. I hate. Yes, I hate the addiction word. Okay. In there, even though there is, of course, an aspect of it, but yeah. So what I think we'll do, honestly, if you don't mind, is go with Carrie Cohen, Loose Girl. I love it. Right? Oh, that's good. Because because then People it's your title. Right. Yeah. It's your title. We've understood what what that means in yes. terms of Okay, so so Carrie Cohen, welcome. Thank you. Uh, I I'm really thrilled to be here with three psychologists. It's like there's got to be a joke about what happens when you get three in the same <laughs> <laughs> I think we have to meet in a bar to do that, though. Right? Yeah. Isn't that how the joke goes? That's after yeah. the show, Brian. <laughs> That's yeah. right. Gotcha. But Carrie, I was fascinated that you began Loose Girl with a count of the number of partners. Mm. And I felt like, oh, wow, wait, she's a therapist. And yet... I wasn't she- yet, by the way, when I'd written that. Okay. <laughs> but also, the count was my editor wanted me to include a count. And so... I did, and the count wound up being such a problem later because it was, first of all, I don't even know if that was the right, at the time I was like, I don't know, maybe something around this. And then, and then later I got so much flack for that because, um, people were like, oh, you know, for, you know, 47 men, that's how many I, I, you know, do in a month. Where's my book contract? Like people were (laughs) responding like that. Uh And, and, you know, and I don't know even know if that was the right number, um, at the time, and certainly it's changed since then. But I, you know, I, um, I was not thrilled with having to do that. But I think because back then there was this thing that that people would ask e- each other, like in relationships or something. And now I think nobody would do that. 
Interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Jenna, you had a strong reaction to it, right? Well, well, first I was thinking, oh, it's just like the driver's license weight thing. It's yeah. like you want to, am I fudging enough, but not fudging too much? <laughs> right. That's exactly right. <laughs> That's right. Um, but I was also thinking, oh, yeah, the number is so weird because you're going to get judged for it wasn't enough. It doesn't make you truly promiscuous. That's and right. then you're going to get judged for, whoa, wow, 47, that's too much. So any number you're going to get. Only by men, but only women oh. for the first one and men for the second. Oh, yeah, Just so you know. Interesting. Hmm. Wow. Interesting. Not, not slut enough by women, too much of a slut by men. Mm-hmm. Unbelievable. It was like I couldn't win. <laughs> so I want to just say that Brian reached out to both Jenna and I and said, I want you to know that this is going to be like a little more difficult, right, for you mm-hmm. as a man? Sure, I get to be the representative. Exactly. Oh, yeah. And so I want to just air your feelings about getting to represent all men <laughs> and how they feel about sex today. A- absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. I'm going to cover, yeah. Thank, thank God. I was, I've been waiting my whole life. So yeah. now I'm going to tell you how all men feel about all of this. Wonderful. No, I had a, I had a reaction to the number as well because it, it, it I think it pulls people in the direction of, oh, the measure is mm. how many people. So if it's only been five, well, then clearly you can't have any hangups about sex. Mm-hmm. But if it's been 45 or 55, then clearly that's problematic and pathological and mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. As though the form of the behavior is the real problem instead of yes. the function, like yes. the why as opposed to the how many or where or what did I actually do or something like that. Like any of that matters. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so, Carrie, yeah. I would really like you to talk about the function. Yes. It, sex for you at a very early age was functional. It oh, yeah. was serving a purpose. Yeah. What was it? Well, you know, I, I purposely left any notion of sexual arousal uh, uh, out, out of the book entirely because – it's like that didn't matter. Whether that was there or not didn't matter, and it had nothing to do with whether I uh, chose to have sex or not, which was always, always I did. <laughs> because because it was always, it was entirely about, um, it was entirely about attention, yes. I mean, that seems the sort of obvious trite answer. Um, but there's also something about how um, as having a female body, growing up with a female body in this culture, um, it is absolutely how we're made to feel like whether we matter or not. Um, and everything sort of gets funneled through our bodies. And, and, and it's not about, it's not about our own choices. That's why I left out the sexual arousal. It's not about like, oh, I, I'm choosing to, women have no, uh, girls rather, women eventually I suppose do or can, but, uh, girls don't, there's nothing in our culture that gives us any guidance um, or any suggestion that we have any sexual agency ourselves or that anything would spring from our own desires. And so all of my desires were based on on his desires, you know, on on getting him to like me, on hoping it would turn into, you know, I mean, I still make a joke all the time uh, now where I say we had sex and now I'm, now I'm your girlfriend, right? Um, you know, <laughs> because that's what I was like back then, you know? I mean, I, I, that's what I wanted anyway. Yeah. And, I, and I, it, was my, it was my access, it was my avenue to um, hoping that I would uh, finally get this fantasy thing that um, we're told that we can get from men, which is basically to be like saved from our pain and rescued and all that kind of stuff that we're, you know, we're all told all the time. Yeah. 
So it went. Um, it it seemed to me that it coincided with a particularly difficult relationship split with your mother and father. Yes. Your father deciding to leave the family and then no, saying, my mother does, oh, well, oh, your right, father first. divorcing yeah. and yes. then your mother actually saying, I'm leaving to go become a doctor. Yeah. I'm just leaving the family. Yes. So you were in some ways emotionally abandoned. Very much so. And you know, the thing is, is that it's, I, I always want to be careful to say that this wasn't, um, this wasn't about like, like, oh, my parents divorced and that screwed me up because that's not true at all. I mean, I totally believe that divorce can happen in a perfectly, in, in a way where nobody, nobody's really harmed, you know, or kids don't have to get harmed by that. Um, because I, it's important to me to not, uh, uh, crap on divorce. Cause I think often that's important, you yeah. know? Um, really the thing is, is that it was more like my, my parents' personalities, my mother, my mother, yeah, my mother leaving was really bad, but also it was a really huge hole for me. But also she was uh, narcissistic. So I already didn't feel loved by her. And then for my father, you know, my father ultimately stayed and, and fought to keep us. Um, but he's an immensely unavailable person. So my joke is always like uh, that I'm, very, you know, my type, when people say, what's your type? I say unavailable potheads. Because, you know, it's category on Tinder. Yeah, uh -huh. exactly. So um, because that's my really my dad. And um, it, yeah, so I was abandoned. My point being, I was kind of abandoned from the start. Like I just didn't really have what I needed from the start. And so then them leaving in various ways or being unavailable in various ways um, just reinforced that. And you you began to see a particular power that you could have in your own sexuality. So exactly. you, I think for me especially with the daughter, I'm always thinking about what is it that's going to be her power, her kind of superpower. Right. Yours was sex. Yours yes. was uh, being able to attract men. Yes. I started, uh, I started using, uh, attracting men when I was like 11. Oh yeah. Basically so, new into puberty. You know? Okay. So, sure. so listen to me once again, if we're going to try to avoid all judgment, Ooh, 11. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Help me here because we're talking about being curious about sex and not being <clears throat> judgmental. But I think 11 is too damn young. Mm. Yeah, but I guess, Sheila, is your ooh, 11? Is there an underlying ooh, 11? Carrie, you were 11 and you were using this? Ooh, mm -hmm. bad for you? Mm -hmm. Or is it, ooh, we have a culture where young girls at the age of 11 are sort of shaped into using their body or using that power as a way to get their needs met. If you're going to ooh that, I'm all for that. If you're going to ooh the like 11-year-old Carrie who is like getting shaped by her history and the culture that we live in, I'm not going to ooh that one. In interesting, Brian. Mhm. Mm yeah, I'm in the same I'm in the same boat. I think that you know the other re the, the immediate reaction that I had to you saying like ooh 11 my my immediate thought was, well, why? Like because just, they're children. Well, but and why is that a problem? Because children in our society should be protected, and and from as a, at from from sexual deviance. Why? Because it's harmful for them. There we go. Yes. Now we're now we're getting there. Okay. Because. <clears throat> It, I don't think we have to go to good, bad, right, wrong, should, mm -hmm. shouldn't, fair, yeah. unfair, right. any of that. I think we go with harmful, yeah. not harmful. Yeah. Right. So like, for instance, drinking gasoline is not bad. Is it toxic? Hell yeah. It's super toxic. But we don't have to say bad and wrong. We can say it's super harmful. 
Uh-huh. So that's the reason not to do it, as opposed to bringing in some kind of moralistic, because then, of course, the question is, well, who gets to, who gets to pick the rules? Who gets to decide what's right or wrong or good or bad? And, you know, sometimes people will say, well, because I'm the parent, you know, or God says so or whatever. And I don't want to like crap on all of that, but I do want to say if we come back to is it functional, is it workable? And it might be like, ooh, 11, because I don't have an imagination for how that's going to be workable for an 11-year-old. Yeah. You know. How do you feel about that 11-year-old girl right now? Well, um, um, you know, she was very sad and desperate. And by the way, she didn't she didn't have sex at 11. Yeah. <laughs> um, but she she was just started understanding that she sure. could use her body to attract men. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and um, uh, so I, I feel both. You know, one of the things that this one of the stories I often tell is that it took me like 10 years to write to get that first scene right, because for so long I wrote the first scene is I went I went up molested by an, uh, like a 20 year old or something. Mm. And um and uh, it took me forever to get that scene right because, of course, the narrative around that is that I was a victim. I was just a little girl who was a victim. Um, but the truth was, was I had gone out that night with my, and I was 12 then, I'd gone out my, that night with two of my old friends and into Manhattan by ourselves, lied to our parents, so, and it was to meet, meet up with boys. And, um, and, and then it was, it was trying to get home that I wound up molested but the truth is is I had gone out almost looking for this you know it's such a dangerous place to go because I don't you know it's like so but I I got it right thankfully in the scene um and then ultimately it it the rest of the book just poured out of me after that because I got it I got what it was about Mm. which was that in some there was a way in which I felt I felt powerful even you know right up until the molestation and even almost with the molestation like it was it was just a little bit of insight for me as mm. a 12 year old as to what I could create for myself even even as it was horrible even you know it's like you have to be able to hold more than one thing in your head of That's course right. to understand humans and <laughs> and this was true like it was it was all those things I was a victim yes I it was horrible I was scared I also felt a little bit in control. I love how nuanced you are about this and that you can hold these paths that a lot of people don't talk about. I want to just remind myself of a conversation that I had with a 19-year-old man who had sex with a 14-year-old girl Mm -hmm. and told me, I'm very confused because she definitely was in charge Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. now I am I'm going to jail for this. Mm -hmm. And she was the person who asked for it, who wanted it, who... And at the time, my my point of view, once again, I'm really trying to learn here. My point of view was she was a child. This is not something that should be happening. Well, sure. But we as a culture have sort of agreed, and whether this is right or wrong, you know, other people get to decide that, I guess. But we as a culture have agreed that humans under certain ages don't get to, like, they don't have the wherewithal to be able, even if you are the one initiating, looks like you're the one initiating, looks like you're the one that's in power, you don't have the ability to be able to be making those decisions. And so it is on, it's the responsibility of the adult in that situation, the 19-year-old, the 20-year-old, to say, no. I I mean, we, and that's why we have 
laws around that sort of stuff. And so it, it's, in my opinion, it's completely, totally normal and even appropriate for a 12-year-old, a 14-year-old boy or girl to or anywhere on the gender spectrum um, to be sort of exploring their sexuality and enjoying a sense of power. I mean, my God, it's like the first time in our lives that we start feeling a sense of power. Like, that's awesome. And we want to be in a culture that doesn't um, take advantage of that or or make that such this, I guess, really harmful thing by by victimizing the you know normal development of a 12-year-old or a 13-year-old or 14-year-old. Yeah. There was a sort of wink-wink moment, Brian, in Carrie's uh, beautiful memoir where this adult man says how old you are, and she lies, and he, you know, kind of jokes with his friend, right, that this, the culture around this is, is very practiced, that an older man says, I'm going to give you the responsibility to lie to me, essentially, mm-hmm. right? What's wrong with that dynamic? Or is there, if we're avoiding right and wrong? <laughs> oh, geez. See, now I've got my own sort of stuff that comes up there, too. Good, like it good. Feels, it feels so... Uh, like I'm not we were talking about at a certain age, do you have the capacity to mm-hmm. to sort of navigate these decisions and make uh, healthful, uh, workable kind of decisions for yourself? And when somebody says, well, how old are you? And you're like, oh, I'm 18. And he's like, yeah, mm-hmm. OK, we'll go with that. It's it's like, good, you've got me off the hook mm-hmm. and I don't really give a damn whether you can make these decisions mm-hmm. for yourself and you've now absolved me of responsibility of looking out for you too. So let's go. Uh huh. Mm. And yeah. it feels awful to me. Yeah. Mm. Right. But, but Brian, I think that brings up the point we're talking about that we're talking about this as an individual perspective. Like who's to blame, the 14 year old or the 19 year old? Yeah, that bothers me too. Sure. Like a 19 yeah. year old boy is actually just a boy. Sure. Still. Right. Absolutely. Exactly. And what is point. it that yeah. in our culture, in our context, we are making it such that both this 19-year-old boy and this 14-year-old girl are, like, trying to, like, navigate this yeah. in ways that are really unhelpful in the long run. That's like, right. I really think if we're going to be looking at who's to blame, if this is a blame sort of thing, or maybe blame isn't the right word, but, like, wherein lies the solution to this problem – we really have to look at this from this contextual cultural Great. piece as opposed to trying to blame either the boy or the girl or whatever the case may be. Because a 19-year-old boy, I mean, my He's goodness. He's a little boy too, really. Absolutely. This is true. So I have talked with, with Jenna a lot in the lead up to having you here today, Carrie, just because it feels to me like there needs to be a completely different education for a lot of people around sexuality and one that is devoid of shame, yeah. that that celebrates our bodies. And I think what happens for most people is that they grow up either in religious cultures or in families that are quite conservative or places where there's not any discussion about sex. And so everything that they learn is whispered. Mm-hmm. How, I, I'd like you to describe what a healthy sexuality would be like how would you bring up a young woman and how would you bring up a young man to respect and celebrate their bodies i don't think i would bring up a young woman or a young man differently necessarily i i would think so 
Carrie, one of the things you said in the very beginning that I was so struck by was you didn't even bring in the idea of your own arousal, not because it was or wasn't there, but it was it was just sort of like a non-factor. It was irrelevant. It was irrelevant. And that, to me, is the part that is so problematic. Like, we don't teach our young girls, and I also think we don't actually teach our young boys or anywhere on the gender spectrum, like, to be curious about what what are their desires and then what are their like eventual goals and kind of morals and ethics and values around this sort of stuff we we don't have these kinds of conversations um and i shared with you sheila and brian like i grew up in a very unusual context in that my father, uh, who is also a psychologist, uh, is a human sexuality researcher. And I can remember like being a little kid and like helping him with his research Mm -hmm. and, you know, item number three, how many times have you masturbated in the last week? (laughs) Seven. B. (laughs) And so there was never, there was never the experience of you blushing over these questions or feeling like, ooh, I, my, my dad is weird. None none of that. I love you, Sure, when she read the question, it was, how many times have you masturbated? Yeah, yeah. I love you, Dad, and I'm not sure I can honestly say this isn't weird didn't enter my mind. Yeah, right. But there wasn't a sense of shame about it. Yeah. You know, I felt like, huh, you know, this is probably unusual compared to, like, my other friends. But I, I really did appreciate that sense of being able to be curious about what is your own experience like, and we do this with all of our bodily sensations. Like, a lot of people don't know the sensation of hunger. Right. And then that becomes super problematic. And we That's use right. food in different ways. And we don't know the sensation of what is pleasurable to my body. Yeah. And what does arousal feel like in my body? Yeah. So, you know, and then we're going back to, like, basic mindfulness. That's right. Sort of stuff. Yeah. I, I, I love, Brian, uh, that Jenna talks about the idea of paying attention because we've been talking about that a lot. Like if you have the experience of going, how does this really feel when I'm drinking my third glass mm-hmm. of wine? Or how how am I really doing if I just bomb out on nacho cheese? Like if you pay attention to what really happens in your body, there becomes a different level of awareness. And I guess you're right. It can be sex. It can be exercise. It can be breathing. It can be everything, right? Absolutely. I mean, I think we snowball on behavior. That's right. right. We get going and then we're just sort of along for the ride. And whether it's sex or it's about drinking or whatever, I think there's this um, there's this experience that a lot of people have where they get going and there's this thing in the back of their head that says, I don't know if I want to keep, but you've got some momentum. <laughs> Momentum is such a great, powerful thing, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. The things in motion tend to stay in motion. And so, and then you're just sort of along for the ride and hoping that you wind up in a decent place. Yeah. It's fascinating to me, Carrie, what ended up happening in your life is because if all, if you don't mind, I'll just try to condense and I want you to read this memoir because I think it brings up so many of these great questions, um, Carrie Cohen, Loose Girl, is that you ended up going through this period you're quite sexually active, and then you decide, I am done being this girl. I'm going to get a boyfriend. Right. Oh, you mean when I got to college? Yeah. Although I wanted a boyfriend the whole time. I felt like I couldn't get one because of that dichotomy. Like, you know, it. I mean, for for a few reasons. Obviously, the first one is the, you know, wife versus slut 
thing that's right. that's unfortunately still out there yeah. to this day. But but it was also more like I I I was uh, pushing them away with my you know with my sort of neediness. Right. But but the moment that you had a full time boyfriend, the sex dropped off. Yes. So I, I have to like, understand like, it. Like almost, yeah, like eight months in or something. Well, you know, I see this all the time with my clients. <laughs> so, and I have a theory about this for sure um, that uh, that I am I love to share, uh, which is that for, for females, we kind of have three uh, sort of phases um, around sex and uh, they're not necessarily um, in a certain order or, you know, or that anybody goes into all three but um but the first one is trauma with the idea that all people with female bodies will wind up with trauma around themselves around sex because of this thing that we talked about earlier where there's no um there's no sexual agency there's no sense of even being able to be connected to a sexual self that isn't about uh, uh, men really and um and male desire and so as a result it's it's almost it's pretty much empty through your childhood and adolescence with a female body um, without at least some amount of, of harassment, uh, sense of, of lack of self around, around your body, some sense of no ownership around your body, which is like a, vi- a violation no matter how it comes, even just through our culture, just what comes at us all the time. Um, and then, and then, um, uh, another, the next phase is performance, which I think <clears throat> at some point most girls get into, which is like knowing what to do. Um, you know, it's sort of like the porn star behavior in bed, um, as a way to attract men. Um, and so perform, so performative behavior around sex, which, mm. um, is like often, um, for a while there, uh, people put that into a notion of like, of like, oh, you know, I'm. I'm, you know, taking back my sexuality. And it's like, no, you're just doing something still that men have created for you. Mm. Um, and then the final phase would be intimacy, where alt- where we get to what I hope we all can get to, which is some sense of, of sexual behavior coming from a core sense of self around your own desires, around real connection, even if it's just for a night, but like want- making your own choices around around that that aren't actually about the man only, um, and, uh, and whatever that looks like, you know, it could look like all kinds of things. So, and my, and so my sense about the women where it drops off, where this, where they don't want to have sex anymore, or their, their libido just shuts down or, or a lot of times too, there's almost like anger when they get touched. Um, but only once in a trusting safe situation is that they're sort of stuck in the trauma. So in other words, they haven't, um, they might have gone into performative probably in in the beginning to some extent. But once there's real safety and and uh, trust with another person and actual sort of intimacy, mm. it's it's like not only is there maybe nowhere in their own bodies can they find a sexual self to even come from for that, but also all of the trauma stuff comes up, you know, <clears throat> and they where they start um, in that way that that we do in our relationships where, you know, we start we project it finally, you know, oh, good. Now I can project all my stuff onto someone. Does that make sense? Yeah. I'm wondering <laughs> what you guys think about that theory. If a behavior's function is to move me away from things that I don't want, mm-hmm. like I feel insignificant, I feel invisible. Um, I don't feel potent or strong or attractive or whatever. Um, And I use some behavior like sex 
to solve that problem, to move me away from feeling bad, it's hard for that behavior then, especially if that's really, really ingrained, it's hard for that behavior to to sort of transform into something that moves me toward something that mm. I want, like connection and mm-hmm. intimacy. Mm-hmm. It's sort of guilty by association. Mm-hmm. So I'm having sex and I'm like, oh yeah, this is like when I felt invisible or disconnected or whatever. And it's like, I've kind of ruined it. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that happens with all kinds of behavior. Mm -hmm. And I would submit that I think that happens for all people on the gender continuum. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I don't, I I was curious about the, the, um, is this only a problem for people with female bodies? I mean, I've never had a male body, so I don't know. Um, but I don't like if I think about my niece and my nephew, like I don't know that my little nephew has been taught any more to sort of know his own body and his personal power in his body any more than my niece has. I just think the stories that we tell our young boys and our young girls are very, very different. And so the script for boys might be something like, well, I'm supposed to want to have sex all of the time with everybody that I possibly can, mm. and that's the way that I show that I'm a man. And the script for young girls is often, well, this is the way that I have power because this is the one thing that men want from me, and so therefore I'm going to be able to use this in ways mm-hmm. to get needs met. Mm-hmm. And if I take kind of a generous view of humanity – guessing like most boys and most girls like wouldn't want that like probably they most want connection and intimacy but we don't teach people how to do that interesting i completely agree i so completely agree and um um that it's that obviously our, our culture around sex is 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 harmful for all people on the gender spectrum um and there's all these yes messages no matter who you are um but the thing about uh the particular trauma i guess around the the sh- the shutdown, which I'm sure happens for men too, um, to some extent, but I'm talking about a very particular one that comes from a sense of violation. Absolutely, you know what I mean. Yeah. That, sure. that yeah. I think that I think more so you, you find re- whether there was sexual assault or not, more so you find just mm-hmm. from the messages that that people with female bodies get. Absolutely, you know? because we do live in a culture where men do hold more yes. power than women do. And so that naturally sort of puts us in this place of we're sort of perpetrated upon much more frequently than people with male bodies are. And I right. and I really, I can't believe we've gone this far into our show without me saying, like, it's important for me to acknowledge we're talking about this in this, like, heteronormative yeah. kind of way. <laughs> exactly. And um, I just want to acknowledge that and I don't think this is only about heterosexual relationships yeah. or some binary sense of yeah. of gender. It's yeah. just how we happen to be talking about it today. Yes. Yes. This is a good spot to wrap up the first half of our revisit of our show with Carrie Cohen, author of Loose Girl, a memoir of promiscuity. Next week, part two. Until then, thanks for listening and be well. If you get a chance to review us on Apple, iTunes, or wherever you listen, we'd sure appreciate it. 